So it's Matthew chapter 5, reading verses 21 to 48. As the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn, him, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, Go with him two miles. 
Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Such is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Lord, we pray that you would uh, be with us as we turn to your word. Help us, encourage us, strengthen us, will challenge us. So we pray, Lord, we'd be able to hear with your ears that your spirit leads and pray that I would be kept from wrong, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a long passage and it's a long and difficult passage as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, which is pretty famous, as we said. And we're hearing it because we're allowed to hear it by Matthew. It it makes it sound like it's addressed to us. And I want you to keep that in mind, particularly here. Uh, When I spoke at Wentworth Falls, everyone looked quite guilty at the end. So, uh, well, I... I want you to hear that I don't think you should be, but that's me, isn't it? So uh, the crowds are in the background and they're hearing these things, but these are directed at the disciples who Jesus has just called and they are the new Israel because the Messiah is here to lead the continuing promises of God fulfilled in himself in the newness of the kingdom of heaven that is near. There's an urgency. The kingdom of heaven is here. Repent. They are in the last days. And as they are in the last days, Jesus turns to the law. I don't know if you've noticed, but in these sayings, or these, they call them antithesis, which is a word I can barely say and I have no idea how to explain it, in these extremes that Jesus speaks, he says, you have heard it said, but I say, it's that sort of tone, isn't it? You've heard it said, but I say. He ups the game all the time. He turns up uh, what is said. It is said because he wants them to hear that as they've carried out their relationship with the law, it's not good enough. He's saying the law will never be satisfied. Let me repeat that. The law will never be satisfied by how you live because you can't live. And that's the point of the extremes, the 
antithesis. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees are particularly in the light of the in the line of the gun here. They've been Israel has been led and taught to do these things, and it's not enough. In each of the following sections, Jesus expands and deepens the way God looks at these things. Remember we said this is an apocalyptic view. We hate that word, I know, but what it means is it's revealing, pushing aside the clouds, if you like, this is how God sees things. It's a new way to live. And as we are before the kingdom of heaven has come, hasn't come yet, it is near, it is near in him, but his coming has not quite happened, if you like. He's come, this Israel, as they're looking at how are they meant to be, they're meant to be convicted. So yes, we will be convicted by these things. But of course we have another answer, which the audience of the speech, of this discourse, actually doesn't know. Do you understand what I'm saying? We know who Jesus is. They don't. But this is in the course of the speech that says, you need to realise you're short of what God likes. How are we going to bridge that gap? Firstly, murder in verses 21 to 26. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, do you like that, angry? Anyway, with his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You can feel the up as Jesus speaks. You've heard, but I say, Murder is a serious crime. It's dealt with very seriously. But Jesus ups the stakes and says, because you need to realise that this is how the law should properly be kept. Verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar, you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. The reality of what God sees is it's you need to put things right before you go and do something. Humans like appearances. We like appearances. God sees the heart. That's why we read 1 Samuel before, do we read one Samuel? That's why we read it, because in all the appearances of who we're going to pick, David was not the one. But God looks at the heart, and he knew because he'd been preparing David's heart. Jesus is spelling out that it's time for reconciliation. He said in chapter 3, verse 10, he warned that even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown 
into the fire. He's warning his audience. All this is a warning. The disciples are hearing this and they're hearing, wow, this is a change. The crowds are hearing this and we know by the end of this, in chapter 7 at the end, they're going astonished. We're hearing this because we're allowed to hear this. Jesus is upping it. Adultery is the third one, he, uh, point three, verses 27 to 30. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, I assume a husband should be put there as well, has already committed adultery with her or his in him in her heart. We know that the law in Exodus 20 condemned adultery, being sexually involved with someone who's not your husband or your wife is adultery. But in the Gentile world, this was common. It's a funny thing. In fact, when we look at our, around our world, the truth is, if I said this is common, that's true today. Nothing has actually changed. Uh, have you ever been to Pompeii? Anyone go to Pompeii? Anyone? Wayne's been to Pompeii. Anyone else? One person. One person been to Pompeii. Two. I've been to Pompeii. Uh, it's a bit shocking at Pompeii in that section you go through where they show you that place. Uh, the sexual morality of the ancient world shocks. In Acts chapter 15, verse 29, the, uh, the Jerusalem elders write to the Gentile believers and one of the things they list is to avoid sexual immorality. Now, if I was to write to you, I don't think that would come into my mind to put that in there. I'd be saying, you know, do this and I hope you're going well and this way. I don't think that would come. But because the Gentile world, that's who they've been, he puts it in there. We're probably back there. Jesus presses hard here in this end time, the short perspective that they have, they should have, a lustful look is just as bad. There goes that up. He's up the game here. We've taken it up a notch. I remember my father told me, I'm pretty sure it was my father, but certainly lots of people tell you, look, but don't. Men, what is it? Men know this, don't they? Look, but don't touch. Have you ever heard of that? Jesus says that's woefully hopeless, woefully short. Jesus makes that plain here. To the heart of the matter, as humans love to keep up appearances, Jesus drives this point home with a hyperbole. You know what a hyperbole is? Hyperbole? Hyperbole. Hyperbole, yeah, sorry. I've read it in a dictionary. I can't really. Hyperbole. You know what a hyperbole is? What's a hyperbole? It's an exaggerated statement. Oh, you're always doing that. 
I've told you a million times not to do you know you heard that one I heard that one again and again as a child um, hyperbo- hyperbole are not meant to be taken literally and so all the children here but any of you who've also got that way about you do not do this verse 29 if your right eye causes you to sin tear it out and throw it away For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. The point is clear. Don't do that. But he's making the point. You think this is okay? Don't look but don't touch is okay? Uh Uh-uh. Not okay. With God's perspective, you need to take radical action to avoid sin in any form. Is that clear? I hope no one's going to come next week without a hand or something like that. I wouldn't like that on my conscience. I'm hoping they're getting that right at home. If is Graham online, don't cut your eye out or anything like that. Fourthly, another one form of adultery which was condoned by the law and taught by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law Divorce from verses 31 to 32. Now, I just need to say, I need to break away from where we are and just talk. When you're talking about divorce, that is a very touchy and difficult subject. And people, you either you have been divorced, your loved ones have been divorced, you know, someone very close to you have been divorced. I just want you to listen and suspend that. Just listen to Jesus for a bit before we talk. Right up front, I have no problem with anyone who's been divorced at all. Saying that, let's move on. It seems that Jesus is referring to how his contemporaries interpreted God's word. You remember in the desert, In the wilderness, when Jesus, Satan, came to Jesus, he could take scripture and twist it and manipulate it, and that's what's been happening here. Verse 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 8, Jesus said this, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Jesus is giving the beginning view it was not that way but jesus also says that divorce was a gracious gift given by god because our hearts are hard and our world is fallen once god once god allowed this provision it ended up being something that people could twist manipulate and do with it whatever they liked. In verse 31, a certificate of divorce could be written probably by a husband, we know, for the smallest of reasons. And Jesus is saying this is wrong. It's an insult. Verse 32, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
If someone breaks the one flesh bond, then divorce happens. This was a brave thing for Jesus to say. We've just heard, we've just read John the Baptist mentioned in prison. Why did he go to prison? Actually didn't find it out from Matthew's gospel. You have to know it from somewhere else. <laughs> Do you remember why he went? It's because he challenged Herod, the king, Herod Antipas. It's not Herod at the start of the book. It's a different one. Herod Antipas, who had married his sister's, uh, sorry, his wife's sister. He got rid of his wife and married her sister. And John said, what you are doing is against God's law and wrong. And because of that, he went to prison. And what happened to John? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Head on a plate. That's what happened to John. So in one sense, this is quite brave to say publicly. It's an apocalyptic perspective of the law, revealing how God sees things, that Israel should think twice before she acts. And, of course, we know that People are listening in the crowds and they are a mixed audience. Some of them are Gentiles. Some of us who are Gentiles are reading this and they will be in fear because they know how they have lived sexually and also in this sort of relationships. This is God's view. I just wanted to say that the one flesh bond in our fallen world gets smashed a lot in our society. And we know people who that's been smashed by, whether it's by a husband or wife, by infidelity and abuse of all types. We live in a fallen world and when that happens, divorce happens. I've known many people, as I said, who are divorced, many people of great faith who have had that happen to them, who have had to do that sort of thing. And the people I admire have no problem with that. Our world is a sinful, messy place. Jesus is saying our conduct could never satisfy the law. We will fall short, all of us, at points as he goes here, and some of us feel great guilt in this particular section. I say Jesus came to relieve you of that guilt. We're not to take it easy, and our society has, no doubt about that, as it does in every area. Jesus is upping the game, but we do not rest on our conduct but on the forgiveness and love and grace found in the Lord Jesus. I'm hoping that's some way clear. I broke away from the text to do that. Did you notice that? Um, oaths 5 from Matthew 33 to 37. He applies that same perspective to the oaths. In one sense, it's quite simple, simple and straightforward. Verse 37, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. 
If you jumped ahead to Matthew 23, verse 16 and onwards, you would see how oaths had become very complex. Verse 16, Jesus said this, Woe to you blind guides, you who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone who swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Verse 18, you also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, he is bound by his oath. Bizarre to us, strange, and Jesus says rubbish. Jesus says simply, verse 37, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. We saw the devil back in testing Jesus in the wilderness, how he, his yes was not yes and his no was all over the place. Jesus saying, tell the truth, fly, straighten up and fly straight because the kingdom of heaven was near. Six, retaliation and revenge in 38 to 42. Mercy is a divine character not a human one. Did you see uh, just a couple of days ago down in, I think it was Campbelltown Way, uh, a young woman was driving along and she bipped a guy in the front. You saw that one? Bipped. And what happened? Was there love and mercy there when she's, uh, so what happened? She followed her, kept following her, eventually got to her, got out of the car and punched her in the face for a bip, what do you call that, a horn, yeah. You see why the Old Testament law had a something called an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, because in that context, it was restraining. A bip should have been acknowledged. She tried to apologize for the bip because she realized what was happening, should have been just acknowledged instead the massive excess of human revenge is on our streets and in our hearts, and that's what humans are like more and more, it would feel. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, etc., is a limiting and proportionary, and it prevents humans from going too far. But Jesus ups the game. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is do not resist the one who is evil but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek turn to him the other and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic let him have your cloak as well and if anyone forces you to go one mile go with him too give to the one who begs from you do not refuse the one who would borrow from you more than non-retaliation Jesus urges generous return action. This is the view again of what God sees in the world because we will find out, it will say, our Heavenly Father gives generously to all people. So Jesus calls us to be generous to people who don't even deserve it. Uh, I've known people in Christian ministry who almost pride themselves on never giving any money to anyone who's ever asked for it. 
I've always scratched my head at that. As they proudly said, I've always just directed them to the salvos and to get their food vouchers. I thought that was quite strange as they started to renovate their one, two, three, so uh, investment properties and retired by certain places. I don't know what's going on there, but it's not this. That's what I know. But I also know that I need to be careful because God's view is generosity to all. Is that how I view things? Is that how you view things? I might not have any money. Will I give it to them? I probably might not at times. God's view is not my view. I won't be able to love my neighbour like this. But Jesus is saying, God says be generous, of which I feel like I fall far short. Love your neighbour is another one, and Jesus defines it. It had become a bit like the oaths. You start to define who is my neighbour and who isn't. Then I don't need to love them if I don't really need to. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. It's difficult, isn't it? Love your enemies. I want you to think about that. That's hard, isn't it? That's really, really hard. What do enemies do? They tend to do bad things to you or have done bad things to you. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Remember, he's just said to the disciples, blessed are you when they persecute you for me and because of me. They're meant to love them in return and to pray for them. That's a challenge. That is God's view, God's way of seeing how things ought to be done. His love is perfect and complete. God loves all people. He loved Christopher Hitchens. He loves Richard Dawkins. He loves Sam Harris. Do you know those names? You might not know those names. They're all people who are well-known and very vocal atheists. I'm meant to love them, to pray for them. God loves them and pours out on them the blessings that we all enjoy. This is God's view. Yet we don't do these things. We need mercy. It's where I break away from the text because I need to solve our dilemma that's in me now and perhaps in you. This new orientation, getting to the see the world from God's perspective, highlights what we don't do. Highlights not the way the world is. The people in front of him, Jesus says, the law, the way you've been taught, the way you do it, it's not God's way. It's upped. It's higher. Jesus warns and prepares them as the time of the kingdom is near 
fly straight and straighten up. But we're not going to be able to do this. We haven't done this. We have fallen short in this. We continue to struggle to forgive our enemies. Christ came and in his coming gave his life and poured it out so that these things might be forgiven. We are the people of his kingdom because he loved us. When we didn't need when we didn't deserve it, we needed it, he gave it to us. We are the beneficiaries of this kingdom perspective of love, where God poured himself out in the person of Jesus that we might be his. By in this new kingdom that is coming in the new age by his spirit. He is enabling us to be more like him. But the truth is we don't still, do we? We still fall short. But you need to hear and you need to know that Christ forgives. He knows the heart and he knows when we need to be challenged, we need to be challenged. But if we think we can satisfy God by what we do, we've missed the point the exaggerated point at one sense of chopping off arms and sticking out eyes. We'd have, you'd be, Keith would turn up with no eyes every week, handless, legless, and eventually not here at all. That might be good. <laughs> Phil just had a look on his face that said, yeah, that could be good, yeah. Um, Christ came that we might know his love, his mercy and forgiveness and his death and resurrection opens up the way for us to come in and for him to pour his spirit on us that we might rejoice in the truth of his kingdom for he has brought us to the God our Saviour. He has brought us to our God, the God who views everything in perfect Perfect wholeness has made it perfect and whole in his son for us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we, uh, there's a lot here and it's hard and we, uh, we don't live up to these things. As we said, the speech allows us to hear these things as though it's directed to us. Father, we realise that we fall far short of your kingdom perspective. But we are thankful that we are people who have benefited from your plan, the plan that sent Jesus to die in our place, to bring us forgiveness, reconciliation, to take away from us the punishment of sin, which these, this passage strongly brings home to us. We are reliant, reliant on your mercy. We are thankful that as we turn to you for mercy, you are that God you've promised to be in this passage. You love us and forgive us because of what you have done in Jesus. We pray that we might know that freedom that comes from your declaration of love. We might know it in all our situations, 
in all the ones that we've just read, but in others as well. We are free, free from sin, because you've delivered us to life. Help us to live by your spirit in this kingdom of life. In his name we pray. Amen.